Welcome to Leading Lights. You're about to hear a message from Lighthouse Church in Jersey. Right, we're in the middle of a series called All You Need Is, and the series is about the five essential truths of Christianity that were rediscovered 500 years ago by a man called Martin Luther. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to listen to last week's talk. And the first one last week was about all you need is scripture. Martin Luther got a revelation that the Bible is not just another opinion, another voice. It is the word of God and it changed him so much that he was willing to go up against the might of human opinion and the world's government structure and say, I'm prepared to die rather than say God's word is not true. I, I trust God's word more than I trust my own life and other people, and it's valuable. And we said, if you get that as your first essential, it'll change your life. If you get a revelation that God's word is special, different, it can change your life just like it changed Martin Luther's and it changed the whole of human history. But now I want to just reintroduce this whole idea of all you need is five essentials. Can you remember the day when they said, all you need is an apple a day? An apple a day keeps the doctor away. And while I didn't eat an apple a day, I was comforted by the fact that if I have something greenish pretty much once a day, I'll be healthy. And then they said, no, you need three a day. And then they made it five a day. Five portions of vegetables and fruit a day. Otherwise, you're going to be unhealthy. Oh, boy. And so we started having to buy more and more vegetables. And now they've said seven a day. I don't know if you've heard this. The latest news is you need seven a day. What do I need? Do people know? Do you remember at school, if you did biology or science at school, I remember sitting there and it was an eye-opening experience for me when they said, there are seven characteristics of living beings. They grow, they move, they reproduce, they respire, they feed, they're sensitive, and I forget the seventh one, but there, there are these characteristics of living beings. And I remember looking around me and thinking, yes, that's a living being. It has those seven characteristics. And then my teacher twisted my brain wrinkles by saying, what about a factory production line where they are making computers using a mechanized conveyor belt production line. Is that a living thing? And we said, no, it's not. And the teacher said, well, does it have the characteristics of a living thing? Does it grow? Well, yeah, it kind of makes more computers, so it's growing. Does it reproduce? Yes, it makes more computers. Does it move? Yes. Does it feed? Yes, it takes electricity. Uh, and uh, is it sensitive? Yes. And we went through all of them, and only one of them did not apply. I, I think it was respire. It doesn't breathe in and out. I think that was the one. Anyway, we came to the conclusion that that is not a living thing. That production line, computer assembly line, is not a living thing. And it helped me. It gave me a weird sense of comfort. I can now decide what is a living and non-living thing, even though it was pretty much obvious to me. But the great beauty of what Martin Luther did was he said there are five essential things 
that pretty much guarantee you are a Christian if you can fully understand and embrace and get a revelation of these five things, even if you worship differently. How many of us know that if you took a cross-section of all the different types of worship service, Christian worship service around the world or even just in this city, there would be so many variations. Isn't that true? There are some that are very quiet and somber. There are some that are very loud. There are so many variations of ways of worshipping. But what Martin Luther gave us, and it's endured beyond him, even though he was a frail and flawed human being, the truth that he rediscovered has lived beyond him to the point where we now say, if somebody believes these five things, they are my brother or sister. And it's helpful for me as well, because I can look not just at others, but I can look at myself. And I can say, am I still taking my five a day? Am I still on track with what is essential? And the one we're looking at today is, all you need is grace. Grace is a word that is used a lot and misunderstood. Some people use grace in a way that is not really what God speaks of. But grace, understood properly based on scripture, is an undeniable sign that a person has understood and received Christianity correctly. And in fact, I will be so bold as to say that Christianity is unique among all the faiths and all the belief systems and all the dogmas and all the different ways of worshipping, Christianity is unique in that it says grace is the key. And I'm hoping to explain that for you today. So much so that if any belief system does not hold to grace, it is not genuine Christianity. And you and I, if we are not relying on grace, then we are not really Christians. We are not really part of God's family and children of God. But the great news is you can receive it. The minute you realize I'm not relying on grace, you can receive it immediately. So let me read you a little bit about Martin Luther. These are his own words. I tortured myself with prayer fasting, vigils, and freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. What's he talking about? They believed that if you slept outside in the snow without a shirt on, you were getting close to God, amazingly enough. Praise the Lord, we don't have freezing anymore as part of our worship. What else did I seek by doing this but God, who was supposed to note my strict observance of the monastic order and my austere life. I constantly walked in a dream and lived in real idolatry, for I did not believe in Christ. I only regarded him as a severe and terrible judge, portrayed as seated on a rainbow for some reason. When I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with the daily sacrifice tortured myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, other rigorous works, I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. 
Martin Luther made a visit to Rome, and there's a place where there are 28 steps, which it, they were told in, in his day, if you crawl up these steps on your knees, saying the right words, the right prayer on every step, if you did that twice in your life, you were guaranteed of getting to heaven. He was also told that if he gave a certain amount of money, he was guaranteed not just of getting into heaven, but of buying his dead relatives out of hell and, and getting them into heaven. He would go to confession sometimes for six hours at a time. Can you imagine? Can you imagine some of the things that he was confessing? I don't know. How do you come up with six hours worth of things? But can you get the picture of a man who is tortured by guilt but also who thinks that there is a, a certain amount of things that he can do to get into heaven. And this was him. And then he details his conversion experience. He says, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words of Romans 1 verse 17. Namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed... He who through faith is righteous shall live. And he says when he understood that it was a passive gift, that God gives us salvation, that it's not something you earn by climbing up some stairs, when he realized it's a gift from God, he says, I felt I was altogether born again. I had entered paradise through open gates. A totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. And this is his summary of grace. He says, That is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein, by a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's, and the righteousness of Christ, not Christ's, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness, that he might clothe us with it, and fill us with it, and he has taken our evils upon himself, that he might deliver us from them. Now I'm going to try and use a picture, an illustration, to try and make this clear. And it is probably a picture that you may have heard before. The picture is of a human court with a judge sitting up in his raised area with his robes on, maybe he's got a funny wig on, he's got a hammer called a gavel, and he sits there and he pronounces judgment upon people who come into his court, a human court case. And imagine you are in that courtroom because your child, your six-year-old child was run over by a drunk driver. And as you're sitting there, the accused is brought into the room and he walks with his head hung low and he walks in and he takes his place as the accused and you look at the judge and you look at the accused and you look back and you see there's something going on between them their eyes are meeting and it dawns on you this judge is the father of the accused it's his own son That is the position that we find ourselves in, in the human race, with God the judge seated on his throne, the just one. You know, we have human justice systems, but they are all just a, a, a faded reflection, a, a, a tiny picture of the real justice of God himself. 
and we have God sitting in, the do in, the, in his throne, and the, the accused comes in, and God loves the accused. And sometimes it's somebody else. Sometimes the accused is brought in, and it's somebody else who I know who has done wrong to me. But at other times, I am the accused, and I come into the courtroom, and I stand before God. And that was the place that Martin Luther found himself in. He, he was walking into God's courtroom every single day, and he thought, I need to try and earn God's favor. Is that you, my friend? Is that you? Or have you realized that actually there is grace? If you haven't realized there's grace, I want to show you this wonderful gift today. The other alternative, which is what happened to me, is we can sometimes receive the grace of God, but then after two or three or four years, we start to accumulate what I call good works, a bank account of good things that we've done, and we start to feel proud in our own ability, or a preacher tells us you have to have done these things to please God, and while we, while we started in grace, we move out of grace into a place of thinking, I need to keep my relationship with God by doing good things. The book of Galatians, Paul writes to a church that had started well, but they had moved out of grace into good works. And in Galatians 5, verse 4, he says, If you are trying to be justified by the law, in other words, if you are trying to please God and stay pleasing to God by doing anything good, you have fallen away from grace. You have been estranged from Christ. In Romans 7, verses 1 to 6, Paul says, we were married to the law where we were trying to please this husband, but then we got married to Jesus, a free gift of grace. And if I go back to trying to obey laws to please God, I'm being unfaithful to my husband, Jesus. So some of us have never understood grace. Others of us have understood grace, but then we've slipped into trying to please God through good works. So we sat in this courtroom. I want you to imagine you are the accused. And it's your father there. Now, I'm going to just list a few different errors that the world comes up with to solve this problem. Because all of us know this problem exists. We know that sin causes damage. I'm sure all of you know. Just like a drunk driver can kill a young child, when I sin, I cause damage to other people. I cause damage to myself. And I cause damage to God because he is intricately involved in his creation. And sin causes damage. We know this. We have a conscience. We want justice when someone sins against us. But we realize if I'm going to be consistent, there must be justice against me when I sin. And so we sat there in the court case and we're trying to work out how does justice marry with love and mercy? Psalm 85 and verse 10 says, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. There is a supernatural way where God alone can marry perfect justice with perfect love. In the human world, we struggle to do that. How can I be perfectly just and righteous and, and accurate and correct and punish sin and yet be loving and gracious and forgiving at the same time? Every parent wrestles with this. When their child 
does something wrong. They want to love them, but they also want to correct them and, and they want to be fair for their other children and they want to make a deterrent so their child doesn't do it again in the future and they, they're struggling with justice and love, justice and love. How can we marry them together? And every other religion in the world tries to marry these two together. And most of them say, if you can do enough good works, you can make up for your bad works. On the justice side, there's a scale, and you've done bad, which weighs this down, but if you do enough good, then you can weigh it up again. And there's this vague thing, have I done enough good? Have I been good enough? Have I reached the hurdle that, that outweighs my bad? Or other religions say, there's no justice, it's just, it's just forgiveness. You don't have to worry. You can just wink and nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and bend the rules and say, that wasn't wrong, I'll, I'll just forgive. There, there's no need for justice. We can, we can do away with it. But deep down inside, we know in human relations, there must be justice. Imagine it was your child who was killed by that drunk driver. You, there's a need for justice. Let me just spend a couple of moments explaining why God cannot ignore justice. Because this question has come up recently by many, many atheists attacking Christianity. They say, why does God need to punish sin? Surely if God is forgiving, he doesn't need to be bound by this crazy idea of justice. Surely God is bigger than justice. He can just forgive. He doesn't need there to be a punishment because he's God. Why does God need to punish sin and why does there need to be justice? Well, number one, there's the whole consistency thing. What kind of a God would he be if he bent the rules for some people and less for others or just did away with the rules or if he required human society to have rules but they don't apply to him? Or if he was different in one period of time to another period of time. There must be, if he's any kind of God at all, there must be consistency. There must be fairness. Number two, sin causes death and pain and damage. Sin is a damaging thing. It hurts us and it hurts other people and it hurts God. And it causes us to be cut off and separated from God. There is a, a terrible consequence to sin. It causes terrible death and pain and eternal separation from God because we've said, God, I don't need you, I don't want you. You are holy, but I don't want you. There is a consequence of sin. And so God has said there is a penalty for sin so that you can see the consequence, but also so that you can know the cure if God says, if I am clear and strong on the penalty, then when I give you the cure for the disease, you will recognize you need it and you will take it. And so God has to be completely just, consistent, and it has to be perfect. He can't just say some sins are less important than others. He can't say Hitler definitely is too bad, but someone else is quite good because then there's vagueness. There's no perfection and purity in that. God says, any sin breaks my holy commands. It, it separates people from me and it causes damage. There must be perfect justice. The person who came into court and committed this crime must pay correctly. But God says, 
I love fully and the way that I'm going to pay this, the way that I'm going to satisfy justice but show love and forgiveness is this. There's only one solution and it's a brilliant solution. God said, I will pay myself for the penalty that you deserve. For the damage that you've caused by your sin. For the separation between you and me that you've caused. I won't just sweep it under the carpet. I won't pretend it's a small thing. I won't ignore it. I won't laugh and nudge and, and just ignore it. I will pay for it fully, but I will pay myself. In the story of the prodigal son, the son abuses and insults the father. He takes the father's money and livelihood and he just treats as nothing the father's love and goodness. And eventually he comes back and the father accepts him back with grace and love. But listen, the father has paid the price for the son to come back. The father was the one who divided his estate and gave all his money away. The father is the one who pays for the party and, and puts the robe on the son. The father pays for that division. There is justice, but it's not the guilty son who pays, it's the father himself. And in Christianity is the only, only belief system that says God does not minimize the effects of sin, but he pays for it himself. And I want to close now by just using an illustration to help us realize what this is all about. Today, today is Remembrance Sunday. Whether you believe in war or not, whether you agree with the ideologies behind certain wars, whether you even are from a certain nation that was in a war, it doesn't matter. The reality is you and I, you are enjoying privileges and freedoms and security and a lifestyle that was bought by certain young men and women dying for us. That is the reality. It happened in the First World War and it's happened in many wars. Young people sacrificed their lives so that millions of us, years later, could be free from an oppression and an evil regime. That is Remembrance Day. And I lift it up high. I don't minimize Remembrance Day. I say thank you to those young men and women. I honor them. I say I am receiving grace, the, the lifestyle that I live, because they sacrificed their lives. Friends, true biblical Christianity does not minimize sin and it doesn't minimize justice or the need for a payment or the damage caused by sin. It says it is fully bad and it des deserves a terrible payment, but God has paid it in the form of Jesus Christ. And that is the revelation that Luther got. And that is the revelation you and I need to give, get if we are going to have one of these five, which is grace. Do you understand the seriousness of sin? It's not just God saying, I'm going to wink and ignore that sin. He says, I'm going to pay the penalty fully for all the damage caused by your sin, but I will pay it myself. I will become a human being. I will live in all the trials and temptations of human life, and then I will die, even though I'm perfect, I will die a terrible death so that you don't have to pay that penalty. And when a person understands that, Freedom, joy, 
gratitude, love, worship, service. God gave his life for me. I'm giving my life back to him. That is grace. It's not a weak little bend the rules thing. It's saying sin is serious and needs to be punished and has been punished. And it doesn't depend on me being good. It doesn't depend on me doing anything to receive it. I just need to say thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus, for dying and paying the price fully. You see, if what, what's happened to me in my Christian life is I've got to periods of time where I've thought, maybe God's angry with me today. And when I do that, what I'm saying is, please hear me now, I'm saying, Jesus, your death on the cross was not enough. I need to help you out by adding to your death, by adding to grace with some of my good works. And I need to come back to that place again of my first salvation and say, Lord Jesus, there's nothing that I can bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I don't deserve this. Thank you for your grace. And when that happens, enter through gates of paradise. Listen to what Martin Luther said. The most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man was the idea that somehow he could make himself good enough to deserve to live with an all holy God. God freely forgives us on account of Christ, not on account of our works, contrition, confession, or satisfactions. And then I'm just going to read to you a couple of verses from Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. At this time, his righteousness, he declares, he may be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Friends, one of our five essentials is this. Are you relying on anything of yourself or are you realizing it's a gift of God? And when that happens, I can honestly say it changes everything. No longer are you wondering, have I done enough? Maybe is God in a good mood today? Is God in a bad mood? Maybe, I, maybe I, I didn't say sorry enough. Maybe I haven't been religious enough. Maybe I've blown it again and I've, I've gone back out. Maybe I've messed it up again. Oh no, where am I? You see, if it depends on me in any way, there's an element of doubt and fear. But when I realize it depends 100% on what Jesus did on the cross, that God has decided 2,000 years ago that I am forgiven and that he loves me and his mood doesn't change and my performance doesn't change it. He has declared me righteous because of what Jesus has done. When I see that, that is real grace and it changes me and I become born again. Thanks for listening. Please visit leadinglightsnetwork.com for more resources and subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes. 
and please consider supporting this ministry financially by making a donation on the giving page of leadinglightsnetwork.com or lighthousejersey.com.